Nobody remembers. Oh, it's about us. Um, okay, no, I know. <laughs> uh, so to be close to God. Us understanding how great God is. I see smartphones, not in bins. That's the. Um, there's a bin. Just I see a bin, not and I see smartphones. <laughs> I would like the smartphones to be in the bin. It can't be contained by them. <laughs> There's another smartphone over there. Okay. Alright, what was prayer supposed to accomplish? I remember last week, no, nobody remembers. What were we supposed to accomplish? Remember, this is going on the, on the website for advertisement, you I know. <laughs> Well, it means that no one should be ashamed to join. All right. No matter how ignorant you are, <laughs> you can come to my, you know. <laughs> like that was the only thing you cared about. Like after that, I just tuned out. That's okay. No, I have okay. news. Okay. Your, yeah, prayer is about connection, and there was two things that need to be connected. There was the godly soul and the animal soul. Recall that. Yes. Okay. All right. That was no one ever mentioned that before. Like the whole year, never showed up once. They really like prayer. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. So the the way you do this, the way all of prayer is. The way you connect the animal soul and the godly soul, as we spoke about at the end of last week, um, is you basically work on one thing. And if you can manage that one thing, then your godly soul will be connected to God, reconnected to God, and your animal soul will be connected to God, and, and you'll have you know, accomplished the task of prayer. Easy. Yeah. Just one thing. That one thing is love God. You have to work on loving God. Pretty simple. Okay. So there is a famous question about love, which is how can God command us to love him? Why is that a question? Why would that, why would that be, why would that be, uh, I mean, God commands us all sorts of things. Kansas to like put matzah in our mouth and eat it and, you know, wrap leather straps on our... It's an emotion and it's also very weird because it's just... Okay. Which one? <laughs> Weird or is it emotion? Pick which question you want answered. It's a, it is an emotion. That's the one we're going to talk about. Okay. Bing, bing. Not the weird one. Yeah. Okay, because weird is not really a question. No, it's also weird because, like, what's the point of loving? <laughs> we, we were so close to not going off that cliff. And you're just like, no, let's do it. Let's, like, just let's jump the whole class right off the cliff. <laughs> Fortunately, there was a bungee cord and we're going to bounce back. Moving on. <laughs> okay. 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 Let's try it again. I like bungee jumping. Let's do it. Okay. Um, one, of the, one of the interesting observations is that it is never asked about fearing God. How is God able to plan fear? Which, if the basis of the question of why can God command love is because it's an emotion, then seemingly fear should be an equally valid question. Doesn't love have no rational explanation so much to it as fear that can be more explained? Which one? What she said or what I said? Which one? What she said. Okay. Well, see... 
I see. There is a technical problem with so that. Because it's wrong. Oh, I have a There's question. rational basis for love. But it, can you not even explain here yeah, so much more? Like, as like a basis to it, whereas love is like more of an emotional thing. Okay, well, that's good. More of an emotional thing, but that, that isn't much of an explanation. Should it be a question? No, because it would be then the holy people with divine inspiration and prophecy would have asked it and they don't. Interesting. Oh, so you're asking us why is it not a question? Yeah. Why is it a question about love? It's not a question about fear. Because I think fear can, like, like a principal can walk in and demand fear by instilling it. No, you're instilled with the idea you should fear your principal. Principal no, is not as scary as a. No, some principals aren't feared, but they demand fear. Right? Like I don't know where you went to school. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need like some private counseling? Because I have to go to class. <laughs> some principals demand fear. <laughs> okay. Um, just remember, this is all being publicly recorded. <laughs> Okay. You're welcome to the audience. <laughs> so, the basic difference between love and fear, and this is not the main topic of the class, this is to get us to talking about love, is that fear, at least as it's construed in uh, Kabbalah and then elaborated on in Chassidus, Fear is always the reaction that you have that arises from the awareness of someone else. So, basically it goes like this. If you are aware of someone else, then you will have fear. So if you don't have fear, what does that mean? You're not aware of them. Now, you cannot be aware of them either because they're not there, right? You can't be aware of that which isn't there, or alternatively, yeah, you're not paying attention. Okay, so it is. So the so uh, so now, if we take five different people of different characters, different temperaments, of different interests, right, and we put th- them all in the presence of the same being, who would in, uh, should inspire a certain kind or degree of fear, and that can vary depending on the kind of being it is. Um, let's just for argument's sake, let's say it's a king. So there's a kind of a fear that's due to recognition of their exalted status, which nobody knows what that means because we live in democracies where we believe this lie that we're all equal and sovereign, but blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, you put all these five people with different temperaments. In principle, they should all have the same degree of fear. And if they don't, that is not attributed to their different character or temperaments. That's attributed to the degree to which they're paying attention, the degree to which they're attentive and aware of the presence of the king. Or the grandness of the king or they just not care about the game. Well, that goes into attentiveness. Okay? But I want to be... The, the, the problem with the word care is that it's very broad. It's like instinct. It's a very general word for all kind of interest. There's a kind of care where you recognize something as significant and pay attention to it. And then there's care in the sense like you like something. Those are... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, and we, okay. So... In principle, if you have a bunch of different people, 
the only thing that explains the different degrees of fear is the degree to which they are attentive in the context of God to God. So why do you have less fear of God than someone else and more than a third person? Well, that's because you're aware of God, is, your awareness of God is like right there in the middle. If you would be more aware of God, you would have more fear of God. If you're less aware of God, you would have less fear of God. Okay? Love, in contrast, depends entirely on your character and temperament. In other words, you can only love somebody because in some sense you feel an attachment to them that comes from the kind of person you are, how you see yourself. Um, and therefore, if you have five different people, there's no reason to assume that all five people automatically love the same person. Or even if they all love the same person, they all love the same things about that person or in the same way. In other words, love is an outgrowth of who you are. Okay? Whereas fear is a reaction to the presence of the other. Now, that means if I command you to be, have fear of God, I personally think, you know, I on behalf of the Torah, thou shalt fear God, what is the command commanding you to do in practice? To learn more about God. Okay. To learn more about God, that may be a little insufficient because, you know, you can learn about something and... and to become more aware. To be more attentive. Learning which may play a role, right? But we don't, you know, being, being a theologian in a university doesn't give you fear of God. That's what I said, theologian. Theologians study God. Those theologians are doing it in like a, like a, they're comparing religions. Or no, it's just religion and theology, two different things. Fine, but they're doing it for multiple different things. Fine, my point is that if you're relating to it as a conceptual matter, that's not going to give you a fear of God. Being aware of God. So arguably, you could have a simple person who knows very little, but for whatever reason, is very aware of God's presence, right? And you could have a person who is an expert of theology and very, very informed about God, but God is a concept and a subject matter rather than a being with a presence. So I'm not saying learning is irrelevant. And as a general rule, the more sophisticated your mind is, the more learning you're going to need to do to maintain an awareness of God. But it's not directly linked. That make sense? Okay. On the other hand, if you're being commanded to love God, what are you being commanded to do? To, like, to feel up your character. To change, yeah, to change your character. To become a different person. And that creates an interesting question, right? How can you command me to be someone other than I am? Okay? To make this physical for a second, you can be commanded to look at the sunset. Right? You go to where the sunset is, you put your head in front of the sunset, open your eyes, and therefore you can see the sunset, right? Can you be commanded to find it a life-changing experience? No, because that has a lot to do with temperament. There are people who find the setting of the sun to be a life-changing experience. And there are people who like, oh, it's the setting of the sun. I mean, there, a big hydrogen and helium nuclear ball set below the horizon. Whoop-de-doo. We move on to something more interesting. Right. So since love is based on the character, the temperament, the personality of the person who is doing the loving, a command to love what you don't love or to love someone you don't already love is a command to change who you are, to become a different kind of person. And that 
is reasonable to ask, how can you command such a thing? How can you command me to be someone other than I already am? I can command it to do something, to engage in behaviors, even behaviors that are more mental, such as paying attention. But how do you command me to become a different person? Now, given that, it should hopefully make a little bit of sense why prayer is all about love. Because if the idea is to take your animal soul, which is disconnected from God, what is a good way of testing how connected or disconnected your animal soul is from God? Said in the end of the last class, if anyone remembers. Wait, what's the? How do you? How can you tell how connected your animal soul is to God? Oh, what it? How? Maybe it's good for you. What it goes to? If God is good for you. How do you? How do you? Like in real life, test that. If you're pulled to doing things that you. Do. Oh, if you're in a state where like you're very like. Can't low. Low that you turn towards God as something to bring you up, not just right. when you're in the state. Right. Or as I like to put it, comfort mitzvahs, as yes. opposed to comfort food. That. Right. And by God here, and I know this could become a whole discussion, we're not going down that cliff either. By God, I mean God as he actually is found in Torah mitzvahs, not God as like, you know, the human drive to spirituality likes to create some kind of a idealized connection to the word idol version of God. Okay. And then what would it be like if your godly soul was reconnected to God? What would that feel like? It's always connected to God. No, it isn't. It's your neshama. Yeah. Your neshama is, like is like an orphan that got adopted by strange people. Your neshama is part of Hashem, like the way you're part of your father. Well, that's the analogy. So, whatever that, if you look in chapter two of Tanya, that's that's the analogy. That's exactly my point. It doesn't mean part in the sense of like a pie with parts. And yeah. It doesn't mean that. That's oh. that's not the that is not the connotation of the Hebrew word chelik which is translated as part. It means, like, in the sense, like, um, like, you have, um, you have a connection, you have an identity, you have a, a, a place. It's very, it's very different. It's important that whoever teaches you tiny make sure that's clear. It's not like there's, like, God is, like, a little, you know, pizza, and then get, everyone gets a little slice. Yeah. yeah. And so if it's, like, a child... If the child is raised by other people, could the child forget who their real parents are? Yeah. So your godly soul, being in this physical world, being trapped in physical experiences, can very easily forget what it's like to be godly. What would it be like if you remembered what it was to be like to be godly, if you could reclaim that experience? What would that feel like? Okay, fine. But can you describe it? Oh, man. Like, I'm saying with, like, like what if you like? Child finding their no, I'm asking what is, what, is the how, what is the experience of your godly soul being reconnected actually like? Like, give me a. a, a being ignited. Only wanting. What God? Like, to connect to God. It's like the only desire. Well, yeah, but the problem is, you, I said your animal soul could have that also, right? Okay, so well, one, of the, one of the characteristics. One of the characteristics of your godly soul, which is different than your animal soul, is that your godly soul does not feel that it 
needs things, it feels like it's the source of things. God, remember, is not God is the source. God is the provider. So when the more in touch you are with your godly soul, the more godly soul is awakened, the more you feel like you are a source of life for the rest of the world. You don't need to take things. You need to give things. It's like, remember, I gave, I think I gave the analogy at the end of class. The water is hot. The fire is hot. What's the difference? The fire. I didn't give that at the end of that class. Yeah, you did. I think that this class I gave it. I don't think it was in the no, I don't remember. Okay, so a fire is hot yeah. and water is hot. What's the difference? The fire is hot for what reason? It is hot. It is hot. Why is the why is the water hot? Because the fire is heated. Because it was heated by the water, by heated by the fire. So too, godly things don't need to receive. Godly things bestow. So if you have a godly soul, how would you feel? that you are bestowing goodness and life and holiness into the world rather than needing to receive it. Okay. Right. That, that is basically the mindset that a shliach is supposed to have. Right. We were comparing the fire to the godly soul. Right. Saying that it's... The, it doesn't need to receive heat, it bestows heat. Whereas the water is something that right. is... Okay. Anyway, the fact is, we don't feel like that for the most part, and we certainly don't have comfort mitzvahs for the most part. And so how do we work on that? Well, that clearly is a means we have to change. And which emotion actually involves changing ourselves, not fear, rather? Love. So it is working on loving God that actually changes us to reconnect our godly soul and connect our animal soul. And that's why the entire service of tefillah, of prayer, of davening, is all really focused around cultivating love of God and not around fear of God. Although fear of God is very important, but we're not going to talk about that. Okay. Given that, how do you actually change yourself so that you love what you didn't love previously? Right. You do not love God. How are you going to change that? You could start by becoming like more aware of His good qualities. Fake it till you make it. Explain what that means. Oh, I believe in Jesus. <laughs> um, I decided Very good. So However, awesome. incomplete, wow. but that is true. Wow. How do you know that? Isn't there a Hebrew puzzle? Yeah, the Hebrew for this is the Hebrew for this is nimshachem After the actions, the heart is drawn. Okay, now this is not though a complete thing, and this is actually a prerequisite to davening. Davening is what takes that beyond that step. Okay, so I'm glad you brought this up because what this means is that if davening is about cultivating love of God, which means changing yourself, what do you have to do first, based on what you've just said? What? Could you please write it down? I'll misspell it. You don't want me to misspell it. So if you want prayer to be successful, what do you have first have to make sure you're doing? Praying. Based on what you just said. 
right. right. So this is one of the things that actually makes prayer um, ineffectual for many people is that they actually take the backwards approach, which is, I'm going to work on prayer so that I love God, and then, because I love God, I'll then go do mitzvahs. That does not work. You have to do mitzvahs. Then doing mitzvahs makes prayer effective. Now, the degree to which the mitzvahs are helpful making this change is limited. Um, and I want to talk a little about what, 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 what that limitation is, but they are absolutely necessary. Um, a common... A common theme in many, many holy books is that if you do not do mitzvahs, then you cannot engage in spiritual growth. The, the physical analogy they use for that is like a candle, or actually more accurately, a lamp. If you do not have the lamp, um, which is like the actual container to put the oil and the wick in, it's all going to spill over the place and you won't have a flame. So too, you need the physical container, which is the life of doing mitzvahs and not sinning, in order to build that more deeper relationship through the tefillah, through the prayer. So therefore, um, it is extremely important that if one wants their davening to actually work, they don't just start off with all the contemplative and um, exercise and stuff like that. It, won't, it will not actually work. Rather, there has to be doing the mitzvahs. Yeah. So would mitzvahs be... Do you, do you think of them as like basically making yourself a vessel for Hashem? Correct. Right. And then the prayer is actually putting something in that vessel. Right. So I want to talk about where, where exactly that, you know, the degree to which the mitzvah works without the prayer, and then um, what the prayer is going to add. Okay. Which means so, doing them at the same like, time. No, no, not at the same time. I mean like this. If you don't do, live a life of doing Torah mitzvahs, um, and then you try and engage in the practices of tefillah, they'll have a limited to no effect. Okay. Um, the exact coordination between that varies from person to person, individual to individual. But okay. so let me let me give let me give you an example. Um, if you are nice to somebody in the sense that you go out of your way to greet them pleasantly. Um, you're, res- you're respectful of them. You don't put them down. You listen to them when they share something. If you engage in all of those behaviors, will you necessarily come to develop a deep friendship with them so that you want to spend your life with them? No, no that is not the case. However, it is the case, yeah, that if you blow somebody off when they want a favor, right? You interrupt them when they talk to you, right? Um, you, you aren't honest with them, right? You don't take their requests seriously, right? It is basically impossible to develop a deep friendship with that person, right? Yeah. Okay. So in a similar way, if you live a life, okay, where you're, where in your day-to-day decision-making, how to be more together with God is not something that you're taking into consideration when you're making your day-to-day decisions in terms of doing mitzvahs not sinning. It basically becomes impossible to develop this deep, transformative sense of love of God. But 
Simply living what so-called a religious life and making sure you do all the Torah and mitzvahs properly doesn't automatically make it that you feel like the only thing you want in life is to be with God and you have comfort mitzvahs as opposed to comfort food, etc., etc. That doesn't automatically happen by doing the mitzvahs. Okay, so let us, for the purposes, let us assume that there is, the person is doing an appropriate level of mitzvahs, not sinning, so that prayer actually can work. What are they supposed to actually do during the prayer service? Okay, now, this is one class, and in one class, can we go over the entire prayer service? We could, but it would be very, very quickly. So, and there, what? You can do anything. You can do anything, right? <laughs> Except play the piano, because I don't know how to play the piano. But you can learn. I could, but it will take time. And by the time I learn, anything the class will be long class. over. <laughs> okay. Um, so, what we're going to do is we're going to, so what we want to do is we want to zoom out to get enough detail that we're actually saying something meaningful, um, but actually... Um, at the same time get, to be general enough that we're not hyper-focusing on one specific prayer and then you know what the rest of the sitter is all about. Okay. So what we're going to do um, is we are going to focus specifically on two parts of the prayer. Okay. Uh, wait, so you say to the, the okay, wait, can I just I see, okay, so there's a mitzvah to love Hashem. That means you have to do efforts to do the things so you will love Hashem. And it is living Jewish and tefillah. And, right, and now the question is, how, what do you do to do tefillah above and beyond just, you know, mitzvahs? Yeah. Okay. So, the two parts, the two parts of the tefillah that I want to focus on are not, are not like stages of the Siddur, like a particular prayer. The two aspects of it, which kind of cover the whole sitter. One is saying the words of tefillah, the actual saying the words. And the other um, is that, we translate as contemplation for now. We'll get to it later. Okay. So we're going to start with saying the words of tefillah. Okay. Now, I am not going to have a discussion about the halachic requirement to say the words of the sitter and what's the bare minimum you can do to fill that. That's a separate discussion. What I don't want to talk about is the ideal way in which one is supposed to say the words of the sitter. When you say the words of the sitter, okay, they should be said in such a manner that you are aware of the meaning of what you are saying. That might sound like a small ask. Like, obviously you shouldn't be aware of what you're saying. But it is actually not so simple. Okay, why is it not simple? Why is it hard to be aware of what you're saying? I mean, it you could be because you so don't... Because you, okay, you've said it so many times. Let's say you only learned that down in Hebrew and you don't actually know So, for, for the purposes of this class, what I will say is that that's a temporary problem that can be solved with time. What I want to talk about is the ongoing problem. 
In other words, the solution to that is simple, which is just learn the meanings of the prayers. Or pray in a different way. Or, right, so I'll tell you this. So I'll just tell you. You have to, as a practical matter, you have to make a choice in life, which is either decide the rest of your life you're going to pray in English, or set aside a little bit of time and learn the meanings of the prayers outside of davening, so you just know the translations of the words. And after a period of, you know, depending on how good you are with language and, you know, whatever it is, we're talking about, usually it's a period of months of, you know, a few minutes a day. Sometimes it's a period of years, depending on the person. And they more or less know the meanings of the prayers. So, like I said, it's a temporary problem. Because either you make the decision you're never going to do that, and you pray in English or Chinese or whatever language it is, or you do this. What I want to talk about is the inherent problem of, like, of... You know the meanings of the words, but being attentive to the actual words is, is difficult. Why is that difficult, and how are you supposed to actually change that, and how does that cultivate actually love of God? Yeah. Is it saying being aware of it, or is it like understanding what it actually, is that the same thing? Saying like understanding of what you're actually saying? I'm not sure I understand the difference between the two. Like, you can be aware that, okay, this prayer, is a, this one is about, like, You'd see us Mitzrayim. Like, uh, whatever, it brings it up there in the paragraph. But, like, actually, like, understanding the miracles of everything and, like... So, I will tell you like this. The bare minimum, unless the person... The bare minimum, and when I'm saying here the bare minimum, I'm talking about let us... We're bracketing the issue of you don't know the language, which you can learn. We're bracketing the issue of intellectual... You know, some people are, you know, they're mentally handicapped. But let's say you have a person who's normal, functioning, so that... And language is not the issue then you should be aware of the meaning on a phrase-by-phrase phrase level, okay? Um, because be, because other, if you have a general awareness of the topic of a paragraph, then you're, not, then you're not aware of what you're saying. And to have the meaning of word-by-word word is actually sometimes counterproductive. A bacher came to me um, and asked me a question. says that we say in the, in the, in the confessional prayers... We say, um, um, we are righteous, we have not sinned, but we and our forefathers have sinned, which sounds a little contradictory, right? Well, the problem is because he wasn't reading it phrase by phrase. The entire phrase reads, we are not so arrogant as to say to you, God, that we are righteous and have not sinned, but rather, <laughs> right? So this is important. The problem is if you know word by word, you end up putting commas in the wrong places and creating up new phrases that don't mean anything, right? So whereas if you don't know exactly which of the two, you know, especially since grammar really changes from language to language, right? Like it, it, it's not so important that you know which syllable means which thing in English. But when you say that, you know, and, and in fact, if you work in another language, translating, phrase by phrase translating is the real task. I mean, because, and, and also the Siddur is not, for the most part, incredibly hard. So if you have a rudimentary knowledge of Hebrew and a rudimentary knowledge of Hebrew grammar, and you have phrase by phrase translations, you'll probably pick up which word in the phrase meant which thing. But if you sp work on translating word by word, you end up creating new phrases that <laughs> aren't there. Um, so yeah. Phrase by phrase translation. So, like for instance, you say Shema Yisrael, listen Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem who is our God, Hashem Echad, is Hashem who is one. Phrase by phrase. Okay. Um, so, why is it difficult? So, because because it's because it's repetitive. You've done it over and over and over and over again. Okay. 
Well. When a person davens, the proper way to daven is that they are saying the words with an awareness of what they are saying. And now what that means is not that you are saying the words and then you happen to think about their meaning. You actually say the words like you're, like you're talking. So, right, very simply. So, um... Like a spot in that Carl Bach when it says we cry out, they literally cried out, like like that. No. Okay. No. <laughs> like. <laughs> That's gonna be fun. When they all started shouting. Yeah. Mm, that was fun. Okay. Can I have a sitter? Yeah, this yeah, is a sitter. I wanted to sit with English. Okay. It was a little straight, like Okay. It's falling apart. Being you, it's a good sign. Yeah. Okay. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Did everyone hear that? Did that sound like I knew what I was saying? No. Didn't sound like I knew what I was saying? At all? You were like just reading a text. I know, but did you hear where I paused? I mean, I could make it more no, dramatic. No, I think you okay. should. Yeah. What? Yeah, no. I don't know how you, but you always talk like insane. I talk in a monotone? No. No, but okay. like, I mean, that's <laughs> Well, I was trying to not, I was trying not be overly dramatic because the point of being overly dramatic it, 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 is that it's going to be funny. It's, yeah, and then that misses the point. Okay. But, what? but for me, it goes too fast. I say, if I say it as fast, I do nothing. Fine. P- the pace it's depends very, on the person. I mean, I also speak very quickly. Yeah. Right. A, ba- a basic rule is like this. <laughs> However, you should the, the the it should sound like you are speaking. That's how you should say it. Yes, like you are speaking. So if you're sitting and being like, "Hey, saying the entirety of the words that you these," that's that's not good because you're. I mean, you wouldn't speak. You don't speak like that. You pause at certain places. You emphasize certain things if you understand, right? If something is a question, if something is an answer, if something is a... Right? The problem... The, the pro- in like a sing-song. Like, what? People dive in like a certain like sing-song and it's not how you normally speak. Um, so the thing is like this. There's two kinds of song. There's two kinds of things. There's sing-song that fits the words. <laughs> and just like in, just like you can sing and sing also brings out the meaning of the lyrics and then there's songs which just like have no bearing on the actual words it's like songs that sound happy but have sad lyrics or like right? right so it's like I don't know like I'm, I'm not good at singing but like it, 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 there's for the certain tunes okay so like in the sh- like in the Shabbos like in, 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 in the blessings of the Shema on Shabbos so there's um there's something called there's something called kale aldono kolamaisin, which is it's a poem, oh, that and and it just it's structured to be sung. You can put lots of tunes to it, and they bring out the meaning. Okay, but then there's like, you know, you can just like you could just like I don't know, um, if you start taking if you start taking you know if you if you start just singing tunes because they sound good with no connection to the meanings of the words. 
It's like there is this matching between the tune and the lyrics. So it's fine if you are singing where there's meaning to it as lyrics. It's fine if you are saying it as if you are speaking. But what's not fine is bland recital or basically where it becomes just a verbal exercise. Even if then parenthetically afterwards you happen to be aware of what you're saying. Because this idea of speaking is that you are engaged with the act of talking. And what that does is that alters your relationship with what you're saying. And one of the things that it, it one of the things that it forces you to do is you enter and because basically this people people speaking and singing are forms of communication. Let's put it this way: they're forms of communication. And when you communicate, there's a mindset you're in when you're communicating to someone. You're engaging with them. Now we can artificially create that, right? You can go out in the field and you sing to yourself, right? But you still enter in that kind of communicative mindset. If prayer is entirely a reflective, contemplative exercise, you're all wrapped up with yourself. But if you're taking the words of the sitter and you are using, you are engaging with in a way of communication, either you're saying the words or singing the words in such a way that like the, the, the tune matches the meaning, then you enter into this kind of more of a communicative state where you have this sense of engaging with someone. That already then forces you to relate differently to what you're saying because you're in this mindset where you're trying, where you're more relational and you're talking about someone or your relationship with that someone. And so now you're the, 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 the act of, the act of the tefillah the, the becomes much more of a way of changing and forcing yourself to have a different kind of sensitivity of God than you're inherently used to. In other words, like this. Sometimes people feel spiritually enlightened. They feel, they feel there's God around, whatever. And then prayer just flows out naturally. That's not changing anything. So if you already feel God, and so you pray. What this is doing is the opposite. You have a book, and you open the book, and the book says some words. You're like, okay, well, I mean, I can either say these words like I mean them, or I cannot. But what happens if I'm going to say the words like I mean them? Again, whether you're saying or singing like you mean it doesn't matter. What are you going to have to do if you're going to say it or sing like you mean it? You're going to have to you're you're going to have to force yourself to change how you're relating. Okay. This is have you ever seen a movie with bad acting? Yeah. Okay. Why are why why are the actors bad? It's awkward. What? I've done a lot of things in my life. Right. So they're trying too hard. They're trying too hard, or they're trying in the wrong way. So when you start davening and you actually try and say the words like you mean them, or sing the words like you mean them, you start to run into this thing that you actually start to feel like an actor who's really a bad actor because. Like there's this disconnect between you're connecting but you're kind of pretending and it doesn't work and the only and, and that creates this new kind of a challenge where you are forced to change how you relate to what you're saying. Now, what ends up usually happening in real life, by the way, that's this is the theory. What ends up happening in real life is that that's hard and so your inspiration to start praying in the right way like dies down after three days. <laughs> because to maintain day after day of trying to engage with the words in that way and then realize you kind of feel awkward because you don't really feel that way 
So if every single day, if every single year of day, you have to pick something, then it's feel like every. So wait, what do you do then? One second, one second. So if every day, if every day you have to say, um, 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 my soul praises God, and you have to say that like you mean it, and then you realize you don't really mean it, but you're trying to say it like you mean it. Well, how how many days can you do that? One second, one second, one second, one second, one second. Fake it, you make fake it, you make it. Only gets you so far. If you keep doing that day after day after day after day, what ends up what ends up happening? What are you forcing yourself to start doing? You you're forcing yourself to you're, you're forcing yourself to either find a new way to relate to this. Or you basically drop it because you can't. And that's why you end up seeing that how do more th- most Orthodox Jews pray? Just very quickly. Yeah. Because the idea that I'm going to say these words like I mean it, so the one day I'm inspired, the second day I'm inspired, the third day, it's like I, I feel a little bit awkward. I feel like it's a little bit fake. I feel like I'm a little being over dramatic and pretending. And then. It's actually hard to say, like, well, well, why? What's going on here? Well, you know, I do believe this. I don't believe this. What's going on? And so saying the words of the tefillah without any actual, like, there's nothing to do with, like, learning stuff and then contemplating the meaning of the prayers. The idea that you're actually going to say or sing the words with meaning day after day forces you to start confronting the fact that you're, you're going to have to be different. You're going to have to change. You, you, can't, you can't keep pretending that over and over again. Um, and in that sense, the sitter is meant to be confrontational rather than expressive. One of the things that people find very frustrating about the sitter is they think, oh, I don't relate to these words, or these are boring, I said them yesterday. And what they fail to realize is that that is not a bug, that is a feature, that is the point. If the sitter was something you intuitively related to, no one need to write a sitter for you. Right? If every day you just fill this you know, just this wellspring of, of, of stuff you want to say to God, no one needs to write a sitter for you. The idea is that the sitter is supposed to be endlessly challenging, that if you're going to day in, day out, say this like you actually mean it, or sing it like you mean it, once the inspiration wears off, you start to feel the awkwardness, you start to feel like your own bad acting, you, you're, you're forced to grapple with, what are you doing? And that adds a kind of, a, 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 a puts you in this, connection and growth mindset and this this hopefully more open and vulnerable state that you cannot kind of ref- ponder or reflect your way into. Now, is that comfortable? Is that easy? No. Do, is it enjoyable? Not no, which is why the Zohar says that it's like war. And that's why a lot of people, what happens? They lose it. They lose it and just becomes rattling off the prayers. And then you're inspired and you like seeing the prayers you find inspiring. Then you rattle off and, and, and I suffer this problem as much as everyone else does. But it, it, in, in that sense, it's kind of like physical exercise. Physical exercise is working when it's pushing you beyond your comfort zone. The sitter is working when the act of saying the sitter or seeing the sitter is challenging. Not because it's verbally hard to get all the Hebrew out in time. But... Like to reconcile like the, the the amount of meaning I'm putting into the act of saying with what am I really feeling 
what am I, am I really being honest with myself about this? And that daily actually changes the person. In that sense, it's kind of like when you talk about your problems with somebody, okay, and you, like, and you, you, you don't necessarily solve anything, but if you keep talking about things, and you keep fronting that and, and saying things that are difficult and figuring out how to say them, what ends up happening? It changes your experiences. You become aware of different parts of yourself that you weren't previously aware of. And so in this kind of way, the sitter is kind of a long-term kind of a thing. It's not like you dive in once and then boom, all of a sudden you love God. But if daily doing this and grappling with that, actually you become aware of, like they say in exercise, you become aware of muscles you didn't know you had. You become aware of, you have to become aware of parts of yourself you didn't know you had, feelings you didn't know you felt, um, issues you didn't know you were facing. Because it's like you need love of God to pray more than prayers well, no, because this changing you, the end result is that as you're changing, as, as, as you... What do you mean changing? Like, what's changing you? The way... So one of the weird things about people, most of the changes people make are reactionary. Did you notice that in life? I mean, there's the changes you make by, like... The most of the changes... There's the changes you make, like, when you go through maturity, like, from, like, you know... As you grow up from five to six to seven, there's those kind of biological changes. But most of like the changes that people like, if you take a person, yeah, and things are working well for them, and you throw them in a new situation where things that the things that work for them don't work for them anymore, what happens? They adapt, right? You hope they adapt. Well, let me put it this way: it's very rare to find a change that wasn't formed through some the person adapting. In other words, you're saying the person not sitting down one day. I mean, yeah, and then it is very rare to sign a person sits down one day and starts reflecting on how they should be different and then makes themselves be different. That just basically never happens. What does happen is the person is confronted with new challenges and then somehow, without necessarily knowing how they do it, they either figure out a way to dealing with that and change and adapt in the process or they don't and suffer miserably. Right? So it's not like I'm going to now tell you the, the, these are the five steps by changing. What I'm saying is like this. Human beings, because we have this ability to adapt and to change and to, but it, it often has to be stress-induced. What is the stress that's going to in, induce you to actually change how you feel about God? Is the stress of having to say these words and like you mean it every single day. If you, if you have that challenge ahead of you every single day, day in, day out, you will figure it out or you'll give up one of the two right so I'm not, I'm, I'm, the thing what here's the thing here's the thing I can, I can like tell you stuff but if I tell you something like you, you do X you do Y you do Z you can't then go do X and Y and Z um, let me give you an example like one of the things that you realize when you do this is that you know one of the things that you realize is that um, you feel a desire to love God I mean not everybody but you feel a desire to love God and you know what's going to allow that to grow and you stop yourself from doing it because you're afraid of what's going to happen and you become disgusted with that and then you stop doing it but those realizations have to be induced they can't be like you can't just like sit down and think your way into that. But if every day you have to say, like, for instance, like, I don't know, it's wonderful to be with God and say it like you mean it. 
And every single day you're saying that, and every single day you're trying to say like you're mean, and every single day you start feeling like a little bit of a fool because you're saying something like, do you really mean it? Do you not really mean it? And you start going through that process of trying to come to terms with are you, are you, uh, are you just pretending something that, is, that isn't real? Is it real? How to, as that starts to happen, you start to undergo these, these changes. They become, they're induced, in other words. And the problem is that we, we, We often like when somebody tells you, like, do A and then B and then C and then you'll have the result. And what I'm telling you is that the way this, the, the, re, the text part of the sitter works is to put pressure on yourself consistently in this way. And what will happen if you don't let that pressure off is that whatever needs, whatever changes need to be made in order to make you whole with what you're saying, you will figure out a way to make those changes. You will have those realizations. But you can't, you can't artificially just, just think your way into that. And in a way that, in a way that like, why is it that people can get in shape when, they, when they're all of a sudden in the army or they have a task at hand they need to be in shape for, but when they just want to be in shape, it's much more incredibly difficult. It's not because they don't know what to do or that they do know what to do. It's again, a lot of, basically all of human change comes from adapting to pressure. And so if you put this pressure of I'm going to say you know, that, 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 that God takes care of everybody every day like I mean it and then have to confront the fact that hey, do I mean it, do I not mean it, do I, do I want to mean it, do I not want to mean it. So after like eight months of doing that day every day, you're going to have to find some way of being at peace with that and that's going to change you. And I can tell you ahead of time what you realize this so you realize that but those aren't things that you do in the way like you know you like like a Seder says, so first you make Kiddush and then you wash your hands and like, it doesn't work like that. No, I know. I'm just trying to think of like an analogy. Because the analogy you use is like talking, talking to somebody. Ongoing conversations with people. It's like small talk. The situation we talked about earlier. And you, you have ongoing conversations with somebody about things and you want the conversations to keep going and you want this to be a long-term relationship you figure out ways of talking about things and being open to things and being honest about things in such a way that it works. Let me give you an example in business, okay? There's a theory. I'm not saying the theory is true, but there's a theory that, um, that having an open competitive market leads to honesty in business. And the theory goes like this. I have every incentive to cheat you if we have a one-time interaction. But in an open and competitive market, every action is part of a series of interactions and relationships, right? And the pressure of knowing that I'm gonna have to do business with you again, or that you're gonna to talk to other people, and do this, that pressure forces me to adapt and adopt different practices that'll work in that circumstance. Right? That's the theory, I'm not sure it's true or not. In a similar way, when you're having ongoing relationships with people and you're trying to talk to them about issues that you have, if you're just like one time out, you can like, you can rant, you can scream, you can, you can shut down, you can do whatever, like whatever. Whatever is your comfort zone of dealing with it, you can do that and that's fine. But if you want to have an ongoing relationship and you have some issue that you need to deal with and you're going to talk about it and if it didn't work this time, you're going to have to talk about it tomorrow. And if you didn't talk about it tomorrow, you'll have to talk about it in two days. Like eventually you're going to either give up on the relationship and give up on, on, on dealing with this or you're going to find a way, right? Um, and in that sense that you're going to say every day something like, you know, Taif Hashem um, Lakil, um, God is good to everyone. Well, how, how many days in a row can you say that 
either saying or singing like you mean it without grappling the fact of whether you mean it. And, in, and if you have that pressure, you then start to dig into yourself and adapt and find ways of realizing, oh, I do mean it in one sense, I don't mean it in another sense, and how do I change that? And, and those, those things, be, you, be, you, you discover them for yourself. One of the difficulties with prayer. If you take the time to meditate, like that's what I'm going through. I'm going to consider and just like trying to meditate on like certain things. But like to be able to do, like then what I do is I just take little bits of the prayer. Like okay. I'm just going to get, I'm not going to get the whole thing. Okay, so, so two things. So this is what's very important here is the saying. Because it's the saying that creates the actual challenge. Much more than the, the meditating. The meditating and reflecting can be part of the solution. But, the, but it's, the actual, it's the actual saying. So in that sense, it's kind of like there's a, an element of faking it. You make it. Say it like you mean it. Sing it like you mean it. Then deal with the consequences. Rather than waiting until you mean it to sing it or say it. Because in a certain sense, you'll never get there. Right. Now, in terms of what you're saying, this is one of the reasons why people take prayer seriously. Do not try and, and, and pray the entire siddur in one day. It's, it's, un, the, 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 it's unrealistic for most people. Yeah, yeah. Do all the shopping, yeah. it's not gonna... So I'm not, I'm not getting to the luck issues of what you have to say and what you don't have to say, but in terms of this actual work... So what Chassidim would always do is they would like make a little mark. Today I davened up till here, and then tomorrow I pick up the next thing, and that's, that's the only way to do it. Yeah, you say all the well, you, you say all the words that you're obligated to say, and you're like vaguely aware of what they mean. But in terms of the actual work of saying it like I mean it, mm-hmm. and then dealing with the consequences of being challenged by that, I set up to there, and then tomorrow I resume, pick up from there. But you say the whole thing, yeah, yeah. but then you say. Yeah. What about the? Let's say if we use the the analogy of like talking about something with someone what what's the like, parallel of the frustration of like not getting anywhere like where you just feel like you keep talking but you're not actually doing anything in you mean it, with a person in, like in the davening like you can have the same one can have the same frustration of like I keep saying the words and I keep thinking about this but I like I'm not actually feeling so it. I would say the first thing is like this is that I have to ask yourself are you really saying the words like you mean them and and often that's not the case often the saying is kind of it's the, the way it's put in the code of Jewish law is that there should be like the when the way it's put is like when one counts their money, um, they, 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 there's a there's a attentiveness to each number as they say it like one, two, three. So there has to be that kind of engaging with the saying. Very often, I'm not saying I, I don't want to get into individual issues, but very often what happens is that the act of saying becomes rote, and then there's a parallel act of thinking going on simultaneously. Yeah. And that that don't work. There has to be like. The thought has to be engaged in the speaking or the singing. That's what creates that stress. In other words, I can, if you know something by heart, you can rattle off and have your mind go somewhere else. And you can even have your mind kind of think along with what you're saying. That, that's, that's not going to challenge you. But having to stop and intentionally say words like you mean those words, this phrase, without worrying about what the next phrase is going to say, that does challenge you. That creates a little bit of discomfort because you're like, I mean it on a level, I don't mean it on a level. And that, over time, 
does build and you become creative in thinking about ways of doing that. I'm not saying that you'll, you'll have all the solutions to all your problems, but you'll have more specific questions and you can ask somebody a little bit. But 90% you'll, you'll start figuring that out on your own. So that's, that's that element. But if it's just merely reciting the words, like, like you know, on autopilot, and then parallel just thinking about their meaning, that doesn't work. Yeah. So when we're praying, we're not. Are we? If I'm getting this right, we're not saying that like. Or is it that the actual prayer, the words that I'm saying, is gonna like mean so much to me? But it's more the my actual relationship with Hashem is gonna. Like I find when I'm thinking about like oh prayer doesn't like mean it doesn't like I don't feel like such a connection when I'm praying. But is it saying that you're still not gonna feel such a connection even though you have that understanding? But you're working on your connection more with Hashem outside of the prayer. No, what I'm saying is that if if you if you if you every day have are are are, are saying these words like you mean them, mm-hmm. and you become aware of how much you don't mean them, and you do that regularly, consistently. The discomfort that that creates creates and causes you to become more adapt and to change and and to and to 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 alter how you relate to God because it becomes it becomes like this this pressure like whereas if whereas if you're waiting for the words to just inspire you with how much meaning they have that's like never going to happen are you going to ever reach that point you may you may not it's immaterial. Because this is, remember, the prayer is the idea of service, about actually working. Prayer is, prayer is not meant to be, the feel is not meant to be that, that, that the, the, this expression of where you're holding. It's, it's if, going back to the analogy of physical exercise, it's, it's if, if what you're using, like, let's use someone who, who's like a professional athlete, yeah? What's the difference between training and actual, the actual game? The actual game, I'm not that I'm a professional athlete, but this is what I've read, is that in the actual game, the, everything needs to be completely automatic and expressive. They're not working on anything. Right? In fact, on the contrary, if they work on stuff during the day, they ruin it. Just let your body do what it knows how to do. But how did you get to that point? They put pressure on themselves and they force their body to adapt and learn new ways of behaving and interacting and picking up cues and signals, right? In a similar sense, the work of tefillah is that. It's like training. You're putting this pressure. I'm saying that I trust God. And I'm saying it like I mean it. But I also feel like how much I don't mean it. And I can put that out of my mind if I do it one day or two days or three days. I can't put it out of my mind if that's something I wake up every day and do. At some point, I have to start figuring out, like, and as you start to change, because when you're put under pressure and that pressure is constant and you're a functionally healthy, reasonable being, you adapt and draw out the potential that you aren't using. But you can't just choose the, the, to that, right? You don't choose to adapt. We, 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 right? So that, that, there's something that makes the whole idea of, of, of God being real and I need to be different a reality that you have to actually work on that becomes real through the act of saying the prayers. Saying them like you mean them or singing them like you mean them. And that's hard and it is uncomfortable. Like getting up and training for a marathon. It's not 
pleasant. But then depending on like the person you are, that depends on which point you'll reach that you like. Yeah, I mean, th- right. But you will change as a result of that. Okay. So that's one whole side of this. Okay. And I think a lot of, a lot of times we, 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 I mean, one of the things that we do culturally is because we want people to enjoy Judaism. We want Judaism to be fun. So we've turned davening into a fun activity. A lot of sing-songy stuff. Which is fine. Like, I'm not knocking that. that, that I mean, we, we, we all understand that learning is an intellectual pursuit and how do we get kids to want to go to school? We start off making it fun. There's very little intellectual stuff going on. I'm using fun in a very specific sense, which is that the visceral experience of what's going on is engaging rather than the actual substantive matter. So for instance, when the kid goes to school for the first time, there's a party and there's a candy and there's singing and how much actual like learning of the olive base was achieved that day. No, but it's going to be better compared to like Learning the alphabet in a song form. Okay, right. But what I want to say, but my 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 my, but I want my my point is that when you want to get people to be engaged with something, you often will sacrifice substantively what you're doing to make the experience much more engaging, much more pleasant, much more attractive. This I is the purpose. The I think that like all the shows are singing loud and allow for people to sing and like say the words out loud allows for me to like actually pay attention to what I'm doing. True, but the, the, there's a, there's a, there's a, the contrast to that. The, the contrast to that is not is is where a person is taking is taking prayer in its more idealist form where it becomes impossible to coordinate the speed at which you pray with the speed at which someone else prays and you kind of have to do it on your own and um, it requires a person um, to to confront how much they're not actually engaging with things and when when that happens who's drawn to that kind of so easy. now everyone is going to sit and sit down and they're going to take the sitter and they're going to wherever they picked up yesterday they're going to say it like they really mean it or sing that like they really mean it and then they're going to give themselves a few minutes to deal with the out the the, the fallout of that and then tomorrow we're going to repeat that process and the day after and the day after and the day after and the day after how many crowd how much crowds are you going to get Not that much Okay. So there's this trade-off, which is that you can make davening as a as a part of Judaism very, you know, using the word fun, and that gets people very connected. And that's very fine. The the thing though that does create is that it limits what you can do with the prayer, because then prayer becomes an enjoyable ritual, and if prayer is an enjoyable ritual, then it's not this creating this discomfort with where you're really holding relative to God that forces you to adapt and adopt a new relationship with God, and over time. That trade-off becomes more and more um, big. Put it that way. You're saying that because it's enjoyable, you don't get the pressure that you. Right, right. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, right? It's like I, you know, when 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 somebody's studying to be a, a rabbinic judge, I don't want it to be fun. I want to make sure that they really know all the ins and outs of the halacha, right? And when my kid goes to read in the beginning, I want it to be fun. Because that's establishing their basic attachment to what's going on. And it's not like one is right and one is wrong, but they're different stages. But if you treat learning, you know, advanced rabbinics like taking a kid to school for the first time, 
don't be surprised that you don't end up with rabbis who are qualified to rule on complex lachic issues. Similarly, if you treat prayer as an enjoyable ritual together, we do together, that's great to getting people to shul and having a kiddush and, and people wanting to be participating in Judaism. But What? And that connects to God. But then don't be surprised that this, all the transformative stuff that prayer is supposed to be read that's supposed to accomplish doesn't really happen. It, it, that's such like a lit-ish approach, though. That's like what? a more pressure like pressure creates like something it's like Hasidus is more like you know, open there's more spirituality there's more spirituality and pressure are not opposites I'm just saying it's like a different mindset it's like a different from what I understood like, it's a different way to look at Judaism well the, the, anytime you're going to this goes back to the nature of human beings anytime you're going to change it has to be pressure now this is where the, the reflective and contemplative stuff because if you have a broader context for things, you approach them very differently. Okay, so I'll give you an example. Let's say somebody um, has a, 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 a deep understanding of childhood development, of different stages that children go through, and they have a toddler. Presumably, that, that, doesn't, that, that doesn't mean that now all of a sudden everything is easy, right? Because they... But if they spend time reflecting on like what's going on in the toddler's development and what, what role they're playing as a parent, the perspective they have on adapting and coping with the stress of having a toddler is very different, right? Than a person only sees it in that very narrow sense that I have a screaming toddler, right? So the other element to this is that if a person learns, um, you know, about the greatness of God and where we stand in relationship to God. Chassidus is really good for this, but it doesn't have to be Chassidus. Chassidus is just very good for this. And they reflect on that, they ponder that, and they develop a whole paradigm that they really subscribe to, really engage with. When they then say the Siddur in this way, that challenge doesn't have that... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It doesn't have that smallness. It doesn't have that sense of, 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 of being just this like, one tiny little difficulty. There's a, there's a broadness of perspective. Um, a way of thinking about it is like this. When a person when a person is trying um, when a person is trying to, to master a certain skill okay, let's say, I don't know, like I don't know, um, would be a good skill to learn. Painting. What? Painting. Painting, yeah. Person, right? So what's a, I don't, I don't know how to paint, but what's a basic, basic skill that you have to master if you want to be a painter? How to hold the brush. How to hold the brush. Let's go with that. How to hold, that's perfect. That's hard, right? But if, if your whole view of what you're doing is just learning to hold the brush with no broader context, even if you're really committed and do it well, there's a certain, let's call it Yiddish fetch kite, a certain being uptight about it. But on the other hand, when you have this sense of how that fits into the broader perspective and how much that's connected and how holding the brush ultimately affects how you paint and blah, 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 there's a broadness of spirit in dealing with that that makes a person much more open and the growth and the change much more holistic. And so what Chassidus teaches is that it's, while it's true that the Siddur is meant to be confronting, you want to supplement that with a healthy dose of contemplation about the greatness of God and your relationship with God prior to that 
so that it's not merely about this, ooh, I said that I trust God, and I don't really feel like I trust God, and then you get like, and I think that's what you're referring to, but, but it's, not the, it's not the challenge to it that's, that, that, that's bad. The challenge is very good, that it allows you to grow, that to adapt. That feeling of having to confront, of saying something that like you mean it, not really meaning it, and where that's fine. The problem is when you become so narrowly focused on that one little thing, and there's no broader perspective that that's part of, it can almost start to feel like you're struggling over something very small and petty. Whereas if you have a perspective of how great God is, where you fit relative to God, you know the the, the significance of what you're doing and the Torah mitzvahs relative to God, and all of that is providing the background and the, and the and the perspective on this struggling to have a little to change to actually feel like you you mean this a little bit more. Then you have that sense of being confronted and challenged without the sense of being. Um, Uptight and squeezed, and 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 and, and 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 that's what allows the prayer to be much more fluid. The problem is that many times people think that the contemplation is the main part of the prayer, and so like to contemplate and think about ideas, and somehow that's going to inspire them into change, and that just doesn't happen. That doesn't really work. Um, and and, and which is very big about contemplating and reflecting, ultimately says that the contemplating and reflecting is all to create the right perspective. But the real change actually happens in the saying the words and the confronting the inconsistency between what you're doing and what you're really feeling and learning how to change and to grow based on that degree of stress. It's not like trying to get Kavana in order to Davin. It's right. like right. Davin and then that makes the... Right. So in other words, when a person reflects and ponders on these ideas and concepts before they open the Seder, and that's the mindset and the perspective they're coming from. And then they say part of the daven that they really mean it. And then they realize that there's a bit of an inconsistency between how they're, how they're saying or singing versus where they're really holding. The repetitiveness of doing that changes them. But there's a broadness of spirit. There's a, there's a, there's a fluidity. There's an there's a openness that comes from having this broader perspective you cultivated beforehand. But the, it's a mistake to think you're going to learn the meanings of the prayers or deeper ideas and become so inspired that then prayer just is this transformative thing and like that 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 can happen. But that's always that's not you're doing. That's a gift from God. Sometimes God just reveals Himself into the soul of a person, and then prayer is an expressive, uplifting experience. But that's not you're doing. That's that's like a parent picking up the child. You know, it's wonderful. A child giggles and it's wonderful. But that's not they're doing. So I'm not saying we never have those experiences, but the, the mitzvah, the work of prayer, is this confronting the inconsistency, the dissonance between my character, my temperament, and the meaning that I'm putting into what I'm saying. And that, if I'm going to do that con- consistently, that feeling, that pressure is going to force me to adapt and to change and to reevaluate and change how I experience myself in relationship with God. But in order that I don't become so narrowly focused and so, uh, the best word for this is just the Yiddish, the fetch, the, the, the squeeze, but that, that comes with, the, with, 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 with a lot of broadness, a lot of perspective, a lot of nuance. So it's important to have contemplation and perspective. And in that sense, prayer really does change you. And, you, and what you'll notice if you pray like that consistently, um, you will notice over time, usually on the scale of months to years, not on the scale of days and weeks, 
although people vary, you will notice that mitzvahs become something you find more, something you draw strength from. You will notice that the sense that you're here to bring light and godliness to the world rather than being so caught up with what you need becomes something that resonates much more. And slowly the idea that you're godly soul and animal soul are being connected to God slowly become more part of your psyche. Do you ever finish? I mean, maybe. But that's not the point. The point is to do it. There are other ways of using the sitter. Like I said, we can make the communal prayer fun a place of where we feel close identification with our Jewish practice, and that's very good and that's very important. But that will not transform a person. That will, that's more like a person now just appreciates more living a Jewish lifestyle. And that becomes like kind of a, a glue for that, which is good. Um, there's other ways, which again, like I said, sometimes God actually reveals himself in the life of the person, and then the, the sitter be, actually becomes expressive. That, that you don't have to work to mean it, it just comes out on its own, because you're, you're there. But that's a gift from God. But in terms of, the, of, in terms of using the siddur, using the davening to do this, of working on changing yourself, which is the trait of love, that's how the siddur features into that. Um, and, yeah. You said there's two aspects of tefillah. Yeah, saying so the siddur and contemplation. Contemplation. But so you, but you need to have. But like, which one it, is the primary? The contemplation or the saying the words? Saying the words. Saying the words. Contemplation adds a breadth and a depth and a nuance and a fluidity to the to to what you're confronting, what you're grappling with, as a result of saying the words. What are you contemplating, like about? The greatness of God and where you stand relative to God, and so anything that basically involves who God is and where you stand in relation to him is, you know, good and then more specific than that depends on the temperament of the person, right? You know, different things will have different effects. Practically speaking with the contemplation, are you referring to spending time beforehand? Are you referring to contemplating each word? It depends on the character and, and, and knowledge of the person, and age of the person, the maturity of the person, because different people are different. Um, it's just like a general contemplation. So yeah, I, I don't. So, so like, look. I mean, when people would ask Zerb about this, Zerb would say you need personal guidance. You can't get like a one size fits all answer to this. But some general rules are: it has to be something that's mentally engaging, and it's much more about perspective than imagination. It's about building perspective um, rather than imagining. So, in other words, you're not trying to inspire yourself so much as you're trying to... Hey, let me give you an example, yeah? Um, there was an artist who, who um, put, a, like, over, there was a cliff over the water, put a bunch of, like, um, theater chairs by the cliff, and then, like, velvet ropes, like there was an event and there was like a curtain and you got to pay for a ticket and there was an usher to usher you to your seat and there were hors d'oeuvres served beforehand and then the, the curtain opened and you watched the sunset and then after the sunset closed the curtain closed and you applauded right. what was all that meant to do? appreciate right change your perspective on the sunset right and so in a certain sense framing things differently it all com- that's all contemplation is meant to somehow do that there are many different ways to do that. 
people's minds work differently. Um, so, you know, one way which works for the more intellectually engaged kind of person is a more analytical thing where you start deconstructing something um, and turning it from just a cliche and a slogan to an actually sophisticated nuance perspective. But that's not the only way to do it. There's different ways that I can. But and it could be something as simple as just thinking through an idea of thinking through an idea and all of its explanation. Like just taking a chapter of Tanya and thinking it through, you know, how each idea builds off the next. It could be something as simple as that. But what it's not is imagining like, I don't know, a great white light going through colored vessels. And then a spinning earth popping into view and something like that. That's something that's, that's not tangible. Right. In other words, it's engaging. It's engaging with with because perspective is something that's not physical. I mean, in the case of art, it's physical. But, but perspective on God is not a physical thing. It's not something that has color or shape. It has you know emotion and concept to it. So you have to be dealing on that level. But who I am in particular really does depend on the nature and temperament of the person, the age, maturity, background, all those things are relevant. But what's really important, and I can't emphasize this enough, is that contemplation in and of itself is not going to actually make the change. Because all that contemplation will do is that contemplation will just change your perspective about your perspective. And love is where you direct, is where you feel something towards someone. And so grappling with the idea that you're speaking to someone or about someone and don't really mean what you're pretending to mean, that actually forces you to really go through the change. So the contemplation is like just telling you what you're supposed to mean, kind of? Yeah, it enhances. And it also, should, it all, it also links like the one little thing you're dealing with other stuff. So you have perspective. Like I, I'm dealing with this one little thing about this meaning of this verse, but that's in a larger perspective of how that relates to like everything in my life. In a like, way. You're supposed to mean that Hashem is good, so if you know what Hashem is, that's like... That's definitely helpful. <laughs> right. If you know what good is. And if you... Right. Because... Right. You, you, so, but, so prayer is... In that sense, prayer is very much an exercise of like... Like if you think about it, anybody, anybody working on gaining expertise in something, whether it's martial arts, sports... Craft an intellectual pursuit, right? There's this grappling that forces them to adapt and learn new things, but they also have to have a degree of perspective um, that it's not just this repetitive, like mindless. And when a person engages with the sitter in that way, they will find over time that there are these changes actually occur slowly. Now, if you're a deeper person and a more intense person and a more with a greater degree of integrity, maybe they happen very quickly. Happened in history, but that's the exception; it's not the rule. So, um, so rather than focusing on a particular part of it, it's just a general attitude to how to approach the sitter, and that forces you to change. And as you change, you develop the blood, which then reconnects your godly soul to God, and connects your animal soul to God. But at the end of the day, it still is like representing a sacrifice to Hashem. And yes, like, as long as you're doing it. Right time, you're still giving sacrifice. Yeah, so the, 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 the actual, in the Talmud, it's actually very clear that prayer has two dimensions. One is a replacement for sacrifices, and one is prayer. It was actually very interesting that if prayer was just a replacement for sacrifices, there's a whole question whether women should be required to pray at all. 
based on the Talmud. It's actually quite an interesting halachic debate. Um, but the, 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 the most simple, straightforward reading of the Talmud of that the only purpose of prayer was as a substitute for the sacrifices, women would be exempt from prayer. There are alternative ways of reading it, but they seem to require a lot of um, textual creativity of how to interpret the text to get to that place. Um, and then if you're talking about this idea of prayer being a Vedisha Belay, the service of the heart, well then that's, that's this. Now it seems to be, at least according to some interpretations, that before there was a formal sitter, there was a sense that people could just kind of do this on their own, and people lost that ability. In other words, um, and if you think about it, a, a good analogy for this is that if you get most people, this is the analogy that I have, for it anyway, that if you, if you take a person, most people, without any training, without any coaching, you put them on a stage and you say, act. Can they do it? Uh, I'm saying most people. Most people there, are, there are people that can. But most people, if you just put them on a stage in front of people and say, like, create a persona and then embody that persona, they just can't, like, don't intuitively have a sense of how to do that. All the more so, create a persona of someone who truly loves God. Now embody that persona, now realize that you're, there's some conflict between who you really are and who this is, and, and struggle with that, like, without some sort of coaching and structure to that most of us. But it seems that in the first temple period, people were more innately aware of what that meant, and they didn't need a form of structure. They could kind of just do that on their own. We can't. So, use your sitter. It's not supposed to make you feel good. Why do we have this whole idea that, like, well, like I mean, I don't know, like, that, like, you're made to daven and feel something, feel good, and connect to Hashem, and it's like, like, you, I don't know, it's. I mean, let me put it this Does exercise feel good? Okay, but if you do it right, right, I agree with you. But what I've been told is like this. If you do it, if you exercise correctly, right, you push yourself in the right ways, the right degrees, and you do it consistently, what starts to happen over time? You enjoy it. You enjoy it. Does that mean you get any less, there's still the discomfort and the difficulty in doing it, right? So in that way, yes. When a person prays properly, consistently, there is a tremendous amount of delight that comes through that experience. But you're not but that's something with that, that a lot. When you're praying, you're not going to do the same thing. If you do what I'm describing and you do it for, you, you don't do the same thing over and over again. Because what ends up happening is you always have this dissonance between the meaning and where you're holding. And as you grow, the meaning you can appreciate and put into the words. And so it's kind of like the horizon. It's oh, the meaning of the, of the prayers is always a little bit beyond where you're holding. And so it ends up not being the same sitter. You never graduate in that sense. But in the beginning, it, it feels like that because in the beginning you feel like, you know, it feels like you're doing the same thing. And then plus we, we most of us, I don't want to accuse anyone here in particular, but at least for myself, you tend to often phase out because it's like, after three or four days, it's not so inspiring, and like, and and it's like you know the real the real sense of how this of of needing to adapt and to change comes, you know, on the scale of weeks and months. For most people. And then it's not going to be something that you're like, okay, like I have davening under. Like right. 
I mean, do you know what the Chabad Rebbein did all day? Not all day, but most of the day? They davened. I mean, there were exceptions or like the of Pesach or whatever, but as a general rule, the Chabad Rebbeim spent hours and hours every day davening. And what did other Rebbeim do? What? Do? What did other Rebbeim do? Yes. Um, it depends. It de- no, it depends on the it depends on on the the chassidus. Most of them spent mo- a lot of time davening, um, but there are exceptions. To I'm that. Yeah, it's very nice, but that's only for yourself, you know what I mean? No, it's not. I mean, it's for Hashem, but like, I mean, like, if you learn Torah, you're like, I feel like it's more meaningful. Well, it's not, it's not. I can't explain, like, if someone would, uh, every day, Torah, they will know Torah, be able to teach to his kids, you know what I mean? And I feel like... But those are, those are, those are, if they spent nine hours a day davening, when did they study Torah? Yeah. And you know what the Talmud answers? The other hours? Talmud answers, no, because studying Torah like, in a serious way takes, you don't have time. Yeah. And the Talmud answers is that because they were sitting, because they had this deep, and were growing in this relationship with God, mm-hmm. they were able to achieve in a shorter time of study what other people took a longer time. That's what the Talmud says. That's what Chassidah says. That's what the Talmud says. Yeah. And it's actually brought in the Code of Jewish Law. Your ability to, to grasp God's wisdom in studying Torah is proportional not to your intelligence, but to how much you care about God's wisdom. And that is growing through prayer. So somebody who spends hours and hours praying, I, I'll tell you what the Rebbe, I, I don't know all the Chabad Rebbe, but I'll tell you the Rebbe Shab's learning schedule. Aside from the fact that he spent, like, I don't know, it's crazy. He spent, like, hours every day davening and then, like, was in, whatever. Um, he, okay, okay, let me just, here's, 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 here's the schedule. You've heard of the Medrash Rabbah? Okay, the Medrash Rabbah is the ma- major um, text of Medrash. Every, he would finish the Medrash Rabbah on the weekly Torah. He would study um, two pages of Talmud every day um, with the standard commentary of Rosh and Tosos. Um, two pages a week with all of the commentaries um, in depth. Um, he would study the Code of Jewish Law um, in depth. He would study Chumash with Rashi and at least another commentary. Um, finish the entire Mishnah every year. This is aside from spending hours on it. it, 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 it when a person is really close to God, what they can achieve, time is different. And so it's, it, it's never a question of prayer versus Torah study. And when a person does make it prayer versus Torah study, what that generally means is that they fail to grasp what both of the things are. Torah study is the degree to which you are able to grasp God's wisdom from the text. And that depends on how close you are to God. Conversely, prayer is not about you getting to have some spiritual high. It's about forcing yourself to become closer to God. If you do those two things, force yourself to be close to God and, 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 be, and studying the Torah to understand his wisdom, they feed off of each other and you can become very, very good and know the whole Torah. But then you still have to keep praying and you keep knowing it deeper, deeper, deeper. Then you have people like me who learn Torah because it's intellectually interesting and pray because we want to feel good and then we don't get very far in either. And we need a lot of time to do both and don't get very far. So.
Isn't like the, the, the purpose of Hasidut and Tefillah are the same then? You know, like... Yeah. You know, like, yeah. 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 One, one of the things... Yeah. What? Like, let's say I, I, I like Tefillah. So I can do Tefillah and I also you love... You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. I'm not going... I'm not... This is not personal advice class. Okay? No, but it's nice. Oh, yeah, gonna, this is not personal <laughs> advice class. What I, what I, what I am going to tell you... <laughs> what? What? No, it's not personal advice class. What I will tell you is like this, okay? Um, there were people who knew the entire Talmud backwards and forwards. Very good. Okay? And what they realized is that knowing the entire Talmud backwards and forwards doesn't help you actually become closer to God. And the fact that you feel inspired when you pray only gets you so far. And prayer is a skill that needs to be worked on. And if a person is going to pray and work on that skill, you know, then that's important. If they're not going to do that, they're going to suffice with the degree to which I find prayer inspiring and motivating, then what ends up happening is the person gets into a spiritual complacency, um, and that does not lead to good places. And this is, this is whether, you, whether in order to work on that you turn to chassidish or something else, that's, you know, that there's and different approaches. How much of the time of the doctor in Hasidut and how much of the time like Umash, like Talmud, like what is like the you know what I mean? Um, well, like how much of the time is like Torah and how much of the time is Hasidut? Well, Hasidus is part of Torah. No, yeah, okay. But like let's say, okay, like all the Torah stuff. Like it just depends on which branch. No, no, I ask Chabad. Every so, Chabad? Yeah, the Chabad. I ask so the general rule is that all of the Chabad Rebbeim knew the entire Torah by heart. Okay. All of it. And I don't I mean know, the Chumash. No, I don't, I don't mean the... I don't know. I don't mean the Chumash. I mean literally everything. Like you can tell Let me put it to you this way. There was a book that was about this thick. It was, writ- it was the first book on the international dateline in Halacha, which is one of the most complicated subjects in Halacha. What? Okay. So when the book was published, when the book was published... The author gave it to the Rebbe. The Rebbe wrote him a letter the next day. The, the, the Rebbe had his secretary call the author the next day with certain notes about corrections that needed to be made in the book. Yeah, okay, but the Rebbe is genius, you all know. Right, but that's what's saying, the Chabad Rebbe. You asked about the Chabad no, Rebbe. No, all no, Chabad no, Rebbe. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Of course, they know. Okay. That's what we're talking about. I was, saying, no, I was no. illustrating the Chabad Rebbe because like, at a certain point you finish. I was saying, I no. Chabad oh, Chabad Yeshiva. Oh, that's a different story. Oh, that's very simple. The boys in a Chabad Yeshiva? No, no, no. The boys in a Chabad Yeshiva. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, okay. That's right, though. That's easy. Um, it tends to be it tends to be it tends to be like this it tends to be like this depending on the yeshiva yeah. it's about an hour to an hour and a half of chassidus in the morning yes. and then it is about 10.30 that was in Russia it's, it's less because people are people are not as good like so it's 10.30 it's then it's somewhere like seven hours of Talmud and Halacha and then about another hour and a half of Chassidus in the evening um, and then there's aside from seven hours of I, I don't know what you know what Yeshiva's life is like they just used it in the, the whole day yes 
but like sit and tell her about the pins. Because they're already on nine hours now, not. Sorry? Yeah. Well, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. There's still three chapters of Rambam, so you finish the Rambam every year. Chumash with Rashi, the daily Tanya, which is not included in this. Then there's, after that, there's what's called, there's what's called um, Seder Sichas, which is where you learn the Rebbe's discourses on the weekly Torah reading. That usually takes place between 9.30 and 11. <laughs> I don't forget. There's a lot of Torah learning going on. They're standard. <laughs> um, a yeshiva. A yeshiva. <laughs> like, um, I mean, they're, they're, you know, a standard yeshiva bacher. I mean, if they're using all of their time, walks out of yeshiva knowing an insane amount of Torah. <laughs> Now, how much are people using their time? That's a separate discussion. But in terms of what the expectation is, the expectation is that you're supposed to know hundreds of pages, every, finish hundreds of pages of Talmud with at least Rashi and Tosfos every year and remember them. Of course, that's what you spend most of the day in Yeshiva doing. Yeah, but they don't spend most of the time in Hasidus. No, nobody does that. The pin wish. test is. They wish, but that just doesn't help as much as learning Talmud. Uh, are you speaking you're... this from expertise? <laughs> yes, I, I, actually, actually, yeah, because if you don't even know how to keep halacha, it's very nice, but then. Halacha and Talmud are two different things. Most Yeshiva Bacham spend very little time learning Talmud. I don't even know. Okay. <laughs> the pin test is the pin test is where you put a pin through page of the Talmud, and they look at one page, and they can tell you what letters it's going through on the subsequent pages. Because they've memor it's 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 more apocryphal than real, but it's not that far. Can you do that? I know someone who saw someone do that. Yeah, I mean, I, there are people who can do it. What? No, I cannot do that. I I have I have I have I I I have not have that good pages of Talmud that I've studied well. I know exactly what they look like and where everything is on the page. And like I can flip through the book until I find the exact like I don't have to look at the page number. I look at exactly the page looks like this, and this idea is right there. But to the point of a letter, no, I'm not that good. But. I don't know. I'm sh- I'm sh- I'm going to say, if he can, he won't let you know that he can. No, all you have to do is be like, there's a, there's a hole in the paper. Now, I will, tell you, I will tell you something. When my father was in yeshiva, I think this was, I mean, I, I knew this man. There was a man named um, Rabbi Tzvibel. Rabbi Tzwebel, um, he knew about this. Wait, where, See, he, where and when was this? He was in Morristown Yeshiva. Yeah, that's my rabbi. rabbi the old Rabbi Tzwebel? With, oh, no. But he also went to, he's, he's Rabbi's own Tzwebel. Okay, so it's probably his son. He's a Mayle. genius. Right, so his father, Mailsu. So he knows all. His father knew all of this word for word by heart on every single tractate of the Talmud. All this little stuff in the back. Wow. Um, the story goes, and I don't remember if my father was in yeshiva when it happened, or he told me that it happened. I don't remember. But the story goes, someone found a piece of some safer that had been ripped, like the side here, so you could tell where it was from. Yeah. And they went over to him and asked him which book it goes in. He says, "Are you making fun of me?" And I said, "No, we just want to know where we put it back." And he told them which book it goes to. So, but that's an extreme. Yeah. He, 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 yeah. I have no idea. It's okay. I'm just that. He was the kind of person that you could bring up any subject in the Talmud, and it didn't matter what it was, and he was, could talk about it like he was just in the middle of studying it. 
all of the commentaries and all of the New Orleans. He had it all. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> See the same one that, like, could tell which bathroom didn't wash on all of them? No, that's Bevel. That's uh, Bevel Looking Glass. That was, um, that, that's a Kabbalistic thing already. <laughs> that's a whole different thing. When when the when when the Rebbe was sixteen years old approximately, so one of the big Russian shivas came to visit his father.